Before we start this show, just a word from our sponsor. 20 by 20 Apparel. Founded in 2015, 20 by 20 Apparel brings original tributes to pro wrestling's classic arenas, moments, and events. They look to spotlight the bloopers, bleeps, and body slams along with the biggest, smallest, strangest, and strongest that pro wrestling has had to offer. Along with their awesome line of pro wrestling apparel, they do offer many services. In the world of wrestling, there are hundreds of shirts, promotions, flyers, social media accounts, and ads. Don't get lost in the sea of parody shirts and display fonts. They can provide professional graphic design services at a reasonable price. 20 by 20 also hand screen prints all the tees in-house. If you would like to discuss possible run of tees, posters, koozies, foam fingers, or whatever, drop them a line. Go to 20 by 20 apparel. That's the number 20 X, the number 20 apparel.com. Now let's get to the show. Fresh is the word. I'm Jim Duggan, got long wood for plenty hoes. I keep it fresher than fresh, but you already know. You suckers bum me, I'm money, I got a ton of flows. My weed loud like a motherfucking thunder roll. Your shit quiet like you ballin' on a budget though. We see your kicks and we laughing, yelling one of those. You see me shining like a suit on puppy. You know my grind and shit is too strong, buddy. That's why the dude call money. I be stuntin' like it's nothing at all. Cause it's nothing to me, it's probably something to y'all. Trying to smoke like me, then come and fuck with your dog. Got a closet full of kicks, you can't cop it tomorrow. And I'm fresher than the freshest, you can tell it's in my essence. Bitch, you see the way I'm rapping? Yes, I do this shit to death. I tell I'm running out of breath. I tell somebody cut a check. But either way, you know it's fresh. But either way, you know it's fresh. Fresh. We fresh. 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 Welcome to the Fresh of the Word podcast. I'm your host, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier. And on Fresh of the Word, we like to deliver wisdom through great stories from the minds of bright creatives of pop culture. Through those stories, we like to dissect the journey of our guests and present actionable lessons and advice for our listeners, no matter what career or avenue of artistry they pursue. And before we get into this episode, I want to give a shout out to Knox Money, Bang Belushi, and Foulmouth for the theme music for Fresh is the Word. And if you would like to support the podcast, you can always go to freshisthepodcast.com and just share any of the links for any of the episodes on any of your social media platforms. And also, you can subscribe to Fresh is the Word pretty much anywhere that podcasts are streamed. And that includes Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, pretty much everywhere. And please, rate and review, especially on Apple Podcasts. It would definitely help out the show. If you want to contact me, you can always reach me by email at djkfresh at gmail.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at kfresh is the word and on facebook at facebook.com slash kfresh and you can also follow fresh is the word on twitter at fresh is the word and that's is with iz instagram at fresh is the word podcast and facebook at facebook.com slash fresh is the podcast this is episode 171 and the guest for this episode is comic book writer ron mars known for his work on titles such as batman aliens DC vs. Marvel, Green Lantern, Silver Surfer, and Witchblade. Mars is currently writing Turok 
on Dynamite Entertainment. During our chat, we talked a little baseball, writing on one title for an extended period of time, his writing process, what makes a good creative team, his upbringing, how he broke into comics through Jim Starlin, and much, much more. Before we get into this interview with Ron Mars, I definitely want to remind you how you can support Fresh of the Word. I'm on Patreon now at patreon.com slash Fresh of the Word. And for as little as a dollar per month, you can support Fresh of the Word. And for the $3 a month tier, you can have access to the Patreon-only exclusive episodes, which I go deep into my audio archive of interviews that I've done for the past decade or so for various publications outside of Fresh is the Word and uh, that have never been used or never been used entirely. So uh, definitely some cool treats in those Patreon-only exclusives. So go to patreon.com slash fresh the word and check out all the tiers that are available. Some you'll be able to actually be a part of the podcast. So once more, go to patreon.com slash fresh the word if you want to help support the podcast. All right, let's get on to the interview with Ron Mars. Cool, yeah, start things off. Uh, yeah, you were a suggestion by Land Pitts when I interviewed him for the podcast of someone that would have some good stories to tell. And um, I was just I was just uh, reading your Twitter uh, feed today, and um, yeah, you you were ta- um, you posted about um, the news of Tom Seaver, uh, legendary New York Met, like the news that he's uh, suffering from dementia. Isn't that so heartbreaking? <clears throat> yeah, it's you know he's uh, like I said he's he's actually shares a birthday with me, right? Or or I should say. He- I share a birthday with him because he's Tom Seaver. Um, So he's always been my favorite baseball player. And um, it hits a little closer to home for me because that's what what my mom suffered from uh, for the last 10 years of her life or so. So I've I've had an up close close and very personal look at that disease. And it's, um, you know, it's heartbreaking that um, everything he accomplished and, you know, all of those memories, all of the, all of the, the triumphs that he had. And I think he's, you know, easily one of the best right-handed pitchers to ever play the game. Yeah. Um, all that's, all that's going to be gone. All that's going to be, you know, he's not going to know most of that stuff. Um, and if it goes any, you know, and if it goes in the, in the way that it did with my mom, you know, he'll have, you know, he'll be able to remember a Mets game from August of 1972 that he pitched with crystal clarity, but what he did 10 minutes ago will be gone. Um, right. It's just that kind of, you know, it's, it's that kind of disease that, um, <clears throat> that, um, that robs you of, of yesterday, but maybe something that happened 50 years ago is, is right there to be grasped. Right. Yeah. When I was a kid, um, you know, like someone like him is, you know, before my time, but I was such a baseball fan that I just try to learn about everything from the past and present. So like anybody from baseball that anything happens to, man, it always sort of like tugs at my heart when something like this happens. And when I saw that today, I was like, oh man, that is, oh, that's so disheartening. And, you know, particularly in the in the 50th anniversary of the 69 Mets, one of the World Series, I'm sure they had a, 
you know, they had stuff. They're going to be doing stuff with the the remaining members of that team and really celebrating the first world championship. And he won't be there to take part in any of it. Right. That yeah, that's so disheartening. Um. Yeah. I was. Um. Yeah. When I was looking over everything that you've done over the years, it's like you. You've. Uh, you've had your. You know. You've written for a lot of different things. Pretty much for all the companies. You know, when you kind of look back and see in sort of sort of think about your input into the comic book industry, you know, what's what really sticks out in your mind? You know, what were some of the great memories that you've always had? Um, you know, obviously that it's much more about the people that you work with yeah. than the characters or the stories, you know, almost all of my best friends in the world are in comics. These are the people that I've, you know, that I've forged relationships with over 30 years. That's, that's to me the, the real, the valuable thing, um, that, that comes out of this. Um, but the, you know, it, in the broadest sense, you know, I've, I've made my living by making stuff up for 30 years. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I, I know I am utterly blessed, uh, to, <laughs> To be able to do that. This is a this is very literally a dream job. This is like, you know, pitching for the New York Mets. This is the kind of thing that you dream about when you're when you're nine years old and very few of us actually get to do it. So um, there's not a day that goes by that I'm not completely aware of how fortunate I am. Right. You know, a lot of times they uh, with a lot of these titles, you might, you know, write one right on one issue or a few issues but you had a long run with a uh, witchblade you know how is it like writing on such on one title for such a long time you know what what really is the key to staying with it for that long of a time um you know you, you get onto titles and some of them some of them are really good fits and some of them aren't, you know, it's like, it's like shopping for clothes. You go into the, you know, you pick out stuff you like on the rack and then you take it into the changing room and see what actually fits. You just, you know, cause you don't know right off the bat. So I've, you know, I've been on books like Silver Surfer and Green Lantern and Witchblade that, that, you know, that I stayed on for years cause they were just great fits. And, and also to a certain extent, the industry um, has moved away from long runs on, on books, but, um, uh, but they, you know, they still happen just not as frequently. Right. Um, when you, when you get on a book that turns out to be the right fit, you don't want to, you don't want to leave. If you've got, you know, there, if you've got another story for next month and, and another and another and another, um, it's great to be able to stay on a book and build, um, you know, kind of build a franchise as much as you can. Um, and, you know, I certainly, got onto titles that turned out not to be good fits. Um, I had always wanted to write Thor and wrote Thor for a year and it stunk. Uh, you know, it was not, it was not the right fit after all for, you know, for any number of reasons. Um, but often the books that you're not really thinking about and that you don't bring baggage to are the ones that end up being the one that the one that's the best fit for Witchblade. Um, I don't know that I had ever even read a complete Witchblade issue when the book was offered to me. So I had to educate myself and, and pour through a box of, you know, 70 issues of Witchblade and, and figure <laughs> out 
what what made it tick, what made it work for me. Um, and I think in some ways when you do that, um, you don't you don't bring any preconceived notions with you. So right. when I you know when I sat down and and read the box of Witchblade issues that Top Cow sent me, um, I didn't you know I, I just looked for what I thought worked and and the things that interested me. Um, and made a list of that stuff. And then when we talked about it more, I said, okay, this is what I want to do. These are the things that I want to, that I want to concentrate on. And, and very much to, you know, to top cows, top cows credit and my appreciation, they said, you know, just, just do what you do. Um, you know, write the kind of stories you want to write with, with this character and with this, um, with this concept. And, I guess I wrote it for uh, damn near 10 years. Um, it was, which by turned out to be one of those books where I could, I could end up telling any kind of story I wanted to. Um, I could tell a crime story, a horror story, a science fiction story, a superhero story. The, the concept was elastic enough that I could, I could do really anything I wanted um, and make it work. And, and I think because of that, I never got bored on the book. Um, I never felt like, okay, I'm, I'm done here. I don't have anything else left to say. Um, even when, um, even when we ended up stopping the book at issue 175, um, I still had more stories to go, which is always a, you know, it's, it's, um, it's kind of a bummer when you, you know, the, the book ends and yet you go off and do something else if you've got more stories left, but that's the way you always want to approach a title is, is you, you never want to feel like, Oh, geez, what, what can I do this month? Um, you always want to feel like, geez, can we do two issues every month? Cause I've got all these stories in me. Right. When you're on, when you're on a long running book like a uh, witchblade and I see that you were on uh, green lantern for a while, silver surfer, you know, how far ahead are you uh, looking uh, issue wise in the story wise um it, it depends on um depends well to a certain extent it depends on the era i mean in, in when i was doing green lantern if we didn't have three finished issues in the drawer um the creative team got it talking to uh and nowadays if you skin the issue out on the last day that it has to go to press everybody's pretty happy um <laughs> so um the the advent of of technology that allows us to swap stuff back and forth to the printers and to the creative team very quickly um, has allowed us to run right up to the red line every month. Um, so in the past, yeah, there'd always be uh, there'd always be issues in the can waiting to go to press, and you'd be working pretty far ahead. Um, now it really depends on on the situation, and and you know, to great extent, there aren't there aren't a lot of runs on titles right now that are that, that people stick around for you know four or five six years um certainly like jason aaron has been doing thor for uh, you know a hell of a long time and doing just an awesome job i love what he's doing um but that's really the exception rather than the rule um so generally if if you if you're hired to come in and do you know do a storyline if for a year or whatever it happens to be you, you know what that storyline is going to be and you know how you're going to fill that year and then if you get to stick around, you have to come up with your next year. Um, so it's a it's a process of it's always a process of of kind of um, 
working on working on the issue that's in front of you, but always, you know, at some point having to uh, come up with an outline for the next six issues beyond that or the next year beyond that. Um, and, you know, it's a uh, like I said, it, it varies from editor to editor as well. Um, but you, you usually I always feel like I want to know where I am and I want to know where I'm going. I want to know what the destination is. And then the stuff that happens in between is is you know sometimes happenstance. You, you you let the you let the journey and the characters kind of dictate where you go. Right. Uh, I I I like to have an outline so I know where I'm headed. Um, but I don't like to. I know there are you know I, I know writers that that outline you know every scene of every issue very specifically before they even start the first issue, and uh, that that's great if it works for them. That doesn't work for me at all. I always felt like um, I always felt like it kind of beat some of the uh, some of the magic out of the story. <laughs> it it um, th- you're just sort of following an outline that you came up with, rather than letting the story lead you where it wants to go. Um, and and that's just my particular um, my particular way of approaching it. Uh, I like to be open to something else happening than I expected and, and being able to follow that path wherever it leads. You mentioned before that some of the things that you worked on, you know, just wasn't, weren't the right fit for you than some were. What, what, what does, what makes things a perfect fit? Is it things that you, that you have to do personally, or is there just circumstances that are beyond your control that might not make it a perfect fit or it might make it a perfect fit? Um, you know, if, if I knew that I'd probably, you know, I'd probably never have a, have a book that doesn't quite click. Um, <laughs> you, you don't know, you know, you don't know until you get into it. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of stuff. It's the character, it's the kind of story you're telling. It's absolutely the other members of the creative team. It's absolutely the editor you're working with. When all of that clicks, when all of that sort of falls in place, um, it's great. You know, it, that stuff happened on, on Green Lantern. It happened on Witchblade. Um, it's, you know, it, it becomes not like work at all when, when everything falls into place. Um, and it's just, it's just kind of alchemy. You never know quite how things are gonna, are gonna shake out until you get into it. Um, I, I tend to be fairly picky about the artists I work with cause I'm very well aware that, uh, as a writer, your story is only good as good as the person drawing it. Um, so you'd better work with the best artist you can find. Right. Uh, so I tend to, you know, I tend to go back to a lot of the same artists because I know that I know that that alchemy is there with certain people, you know, with with Rick Leonardi, with Daryl Banks, with Bart Sears. Um, you the writer and artist of, com- of a comic have to be no pun intended on the same page for it to work as well as it as it can and as it should um so when you when you find people that you work with well you tend to go back to it is it hard to find that right fit with the other with other collaborators on these titles how often does things just not work out you know honestly honestly not very often i mean i've I've only had a few, I wouldn't even call them bad experiences with, with artists. I've had, I've had 
experiences that were that were you know less than great sometimes where it just kind of you know the the project comes out and it's sort of average you know it's not quite what you had hoped it would be but it's fine um you know really the 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 the, the worst day you know working on comics is better than the best day doing a lot of other things um, <laughs> so uh so i'm you know i'm thankful for everybody buddy that i've had the chance to work with but but sometimes um sometimes it just doesn't click and and it's really there's no specific reason why a lot of times it's just that the you know my storytelling sense and the artist storytelling sense aren't quite aren't quite similar or or the 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 artist might want more from me than i've gotten the script or less from me than i've gotten the script um and i might be looking for more feedback from them it's it's you know, it's some, it's like being a matchmaker sometimes. Um, it's, it's, um, it's like dating to a certain extent. You just never know where they're, you know, where, when sparks are going to fly, uh, and two people are going to, uh, or in the case of a creative team, obviously it's, you know, writer, artist, but also the colorist, the letterer, everybody involved, you know, when everybody clicks, um, it's, it, there's a kind of magic to it. What makes a great creative team? You know, what does everybody got to bring to the table to make things work properly? Um, I think, you know, that, that's a, that's a long answer. Actually, that's a, it's, there's, there's so many aspects to that, that we could, you know, we could do three shows on it. Right. <laughs> but I think, um, I think the biggest element for me is that there's got to be a sense of give and take um, between the writer and the artist. There has to be, um, you have to, you have to all be pulling in the same direction, obviously the, you know, the artist, whether it's a penciler and a different inker or somebody who's doing their own lines and the colorist, uh, and the letter, everybody's got to be on the same page, pulling in the same direction, telling the same story. Um, but beyond that, I think specifically for the writer and the artist, there has to be some give and take. I have to give the artist, room to do what he or she does and i have to do my best to provide to that person um what excites them what gets them uh juice to go to the go to the drawing board in the morning it can't just be you know it, it can't just be my vision of of how to tell this story there's got to be that give and take and um the, a sense of compromise uh between the the two creators that that really brings the story to life um i don't expect the artist to just take what's in my head which goes onto a onto the page in the script and just be an art monkey that's not the job that's not you know if 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 that's what you if, if that's what you as a writer want um first of all you're in the wrong business <laughs> and and second, you know, just then just go get a, a studio full of, you know, faceless artists to produce exactly what's in your script. Um, I, the, the part of this that I love the most is when I get the pages back, when my script goes out and then a week goes by and I get the first pages back and see what my script has been turned into, how, how my script has been sort of um, breathed into life. Uh, by the artist 
that's the that's the best part of this. It's been it, it's was the best part of it the first day on the job, and it's still the best part of it. Do you like the sort of give and take nature of the creative process? You know, how do you uh, sort of resolve any conflicts? You know, how do you pick your own? Ba- how do you pick the battles that you want to really face? Well, hopefully you don't have any battles. I mean, obviously that's um, that's if you know if if you're having constant battles, you're working with the wrong people. Um, so I think when when there are differences of opinion or disagreements, that's when that's when compromise uh, comes into comes into it. I think a lot of it is trust. You know, I I trust the artist that I'm working with to take my script and and um, and make it come to life. And if, if I write a page that's got five panels on it and the, the, when the artist draws it, he or she has decided they need six panels to do it properly or four panels to do it properly. That's part of the process. You know, as long as we're telling the same story, the, you know, the details are, uh, the details are, are just part of the process. Uh, and I, you know, I, I always work. I, I generally work full script unless unless a an artist wants plot style. I'm happy to do that as well. And some guys that I work with uh, do that. Um, the 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 real joy of that of of those pages coming back, even if they're slightly different from what you wrote. Um, you know, my job is then go in and change the dialogue and work with, you know, work with what's on the page and, and create something even better than either of us had intended in the first place. Let's go back a little bit. Um, how did you first get into wanting to be a comic book writer? You know, what kind of kid were you? What, you know, what did you do when you were young? What were some of your interests? And when did you eventually want to become a, a comic book writer? Um, you know, I don't know that I had any, I mean, becoming a comic book writer is not like the most realistic career goal you could ever have. <laughs> right. Um, like I said, it, it's like, you know, playing third base for the Yankees or pitching for the Mets. It's, it's, it's a dream, but most of the time, you know, it's so unattainable that, that it just seems like, well, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, I always knew I was going to be a writer because that's what I could do. I was that's the thing that I was best at as a kid and through high school and college. Um, I was a writer. I when I graduated from college, I was already working at a daily newspaper as a reporter. Um, so, you know, my I was going to make my living writing one way or another. Um, it just never occurred to me to be anything else. Uh, so. um I was working at a daily newspaper. I was friends with the comic creators that lived in my area, which included um, Bernie Wrightson, Joe Staten, Fred Hembeck, Terry Austin, and Jim Starlin. Uh, and I got to be, you know, real close with all of those guys, but in particular with Jim. Uh, and Jim had me copy edit his first prose novel. Uh, and, you know, I did it as a favor and I think I, I think I did it for a sushi dinner is, is, is what, uh, <laughs> what, the, what the agreed upon cost was. And, uh, Jim, Jim liked what I did. And obviously, you know, I was aware of comics. I was a fan of comics, but you know, these guys were my friends. These were the people who I hung out with. 
Um, so uh, Jim is the one who said to me, um, he actually said to me over lunch in a bagel joint one time after we had uh, after we had played racquetball in the morning. Um, he said, "Hey, do you ever want to? Do you ever think about about writing comics? You're good at this. I don't see why it wouldn't translate. Um, do you want to give that a try?" And you know, again, that's like somebody saying, "Hey, you want to go play for the Yankees?" Uh, yeah. So, so that you know, that's literally my breaking in story. Is Jim Starlin said I should write comics, so I did. Uh, and Jim wrote, co-wrote my first few uh, gigs with me, introduced me around at Marvel. And then I guess within a year or so, um, turned Silver Surfer over to me when he went off to do um, the Infinity Gauntlet miniseries and bring back the Warlock monthly series. So um, so I inherited Surfer from him and I've been doing it ever since. Wow. During, the, during that time, you know, what was some of the things that you learned about just the comic book writing and just writing in general from all those friends of yours? Well, the, you know, obviously I, there was a crash course in this is how you write a comic script from Jim. Uh, but I found, uh, you know, in Jim gave me a bunch of scripts to, to, to look at and I compared them to um, to how the the actual issues came out when they were published. And it kind of went, oh, I can do this. I get it. Um, it's it's visual storytelling. Uh, I, the first lesson that Jim ever gave me was that, that comic book panels are frozen moments in time. It's, it's like, um, watching a strip of film, um, actual film that goes through the camera, um, uh, in a, in a theater rather than a digital projection. Uh, and it's the writer's job to come up with what's on that strip of film and then to pick out the specific moments that are going to be shown from that strip of film, pick out individual images from that strip. So that's why it's that's why it's frozen moments in time, because each panel is a frozen moment. You can show one thing in a panel. Uh, you can't show Batman jumping into the Batmobile and driving away in one panel. That's at least two actions and probably three. Um, and right off the bat, I got that. I understood that. Um, there are, there are a lot of writers that come into this business, um, from, especially from other disciplines, from film, from novels, something like that. And it takes them quite a while to grasp that, that frozen moment in time, um, specificity of the script. Uh, the, the writer of a comic really has to be able to think visually and to break down the action visually on the page uh, and and in each specific panel. Um, and obviously then the, the you know, the, the, the writers, I always liken it to the writer is, is the guy who makes the blueprints, but the artist is the dude who actually builds the house. <laughs> uh, so, so my, you know, my scripts are, are essentially a long letter to the artist to say here, this is how I see the story in specific images, then you go draw it how you want to. Um, that to me is still the, the biggest lesson in writing comics is, is that is breaking down the, the, the action into those visuals per page and then per panel. Um, I took a lot of film classes when I was in college. Uh, 
I was a film reviewer at the Daily Newspaper for a while. So I was very steeped in visual storytelling from a cinematic aspect, from a a film aspect. Um, And comics and movies are obviously sort of bastard cousins. Um, The big difference is movies, movies move, hence the name. And comics don't. They're single images. Um, so, but, but a lot of the, a lot of the visual storytelling techniques are the same. Um, the camera angles and, um, and the, the movement of the movement of the eye across the page, the movement of the eye across the the movie screen, a lot of that stuff is very similar. So a lot of what I learned in film classes translated, um, very, uh, very easily to, uh, to writing comic scripts. How did you feel when you started that Silver Surfer run? You know, what was your uh, your thoughts, your feelings when Jim kind of handed it over to you? Oh, I was excited, man, because I was getting paid to do comics. That's crazy. Um, it, you know, it's. I, I think I was, I think I was too excited to to have any real trepidation about it. You know, I, I don't, I don't recall, um, I don't recall being nervous about it because I knew I could do it. I, I knew that this was like if if my scripts were were good enough for Jim Starlin to say, uh, you know, to, to have his name on them with mine and and say to Marvel, this is you know, this is what we're doing. You know, that gave me the confidence to not really be overly nervous about it. Um, so I was, you know, I was just excited uh, and and, you know, anxious, anxious to do everything I could. Um Anxious to um, to do more work, to play with more toys in the toy box. Uh, it was really, um, you know, it I, it was very much on the job training because my my first script ever was Silver Surfer Annual Three, I think that was the first thing I ever wrote, and you know, uh, you know, I got to I got to start my career by doing a book with Marvel. Um, that's a fairly rare occurrence. Uh, it's a fairly rare occurrence back then, and it's you know it's it's even rarer now. Right. I remember when I was a kid, uh, there, in my neighborhood, they um, there used to be this uh, house that would give out comic books on Halloween, and I remember getting a Silver Surfer one, and I was just checking to <laughs> see if it was during your run, but it was actually during Jim's run because it was number th- uh, forty three. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I actually, one of the, one of the other books that I did was I, I co-wrote 42 with Jim. Um, so, uh, miss me by a month. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute. I have one. Let me check to see if, uh, it was on your run. It was a very cool, it was a very cool day to, um, to walk into the comic store where I was already a customer, you know? Right. To, you know, to walk into the comic store and, and have my first issue there. Um, very, uh, you know, very exciting. But, you know, you know, you know, you, you want to be cool about it. You know, you don't want everybody to, you know, see that you're hyperventilating because of your um, uh, your comic is actually out of the stands. Over no, I've I've seen this discussion countless times on social media where people are, are like, "Who's more important, the writer or the artist?" And I think it's kind of a bullshit discussion to have. You know, what's your thoughts about that? It is a bullshit discussion to have because the artist is more important. 
Right. Um, it's, you know, no artist, no comic. Yeah, like, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's the, always a weird know, thing to me. I'm like, okay, why are you guys discussing this shit? It's, it's, it's you know, both parts are necessary, obviously, right? right. Both parts, and, and you want both parts to work well, uh, to work together, uh, because the, the, the product is much better when both parts work. However, nobody wants to read my scripts, right? Like, like my scripts are read by like five people in the world. <laughs> my scripts are read by the artist, hopefully the colorist, the letterer, and the editor. That's it, man. Nobody, nobody reads that shit. It's, it's, it's raw material to build something else. Um, but what every every line that the artist puts down is what people see. Um, so yes, this, the stories, the story is necessary. Um, there has to be a story. However, an artist can sit down and draw a story without my input whatsoever. And it's still a comic, but I can't write a script and hand it to somebody and say, this is a comic cause it's not right. Right. What is it, do you, you know, in your opinion about comics that are just so magical? Um, it's the, it's that intersection of, of most of the time words and pictures, but even sometimes just story and pictures, because you don't really, you don't really even need words to tell your story visually. So it's, it's, it's that aspect of, of telling the story with pictures, um, generally words and pictures. And, and it's, it's what you get at the end of that process is much more than you could do separately. It's, it's a comic is, is a, is a refined product of words and pictures that you could not get from words alone or from pictures alone to great extent. Um, and we as a species have been telling stories with pictures since we've been painting on cave walls. You know, we're, we're a, we're a visual species. You know, people talk about what, what was the first comic? Well, the first comic was about, you know, was about cavemen hunting, you know, hunting elk and, and, and painting that on walls. Those, those are the first comics. Yeah. Uh, Because we as a species tell stories visually, Um, or, or at least one of the ways we tell stories is visually. And, and obviously, um, as a modern society, when we, we tell stories through single images, we tell stories through moving images, we tell stories through augmented reality now, but, um, it's, it's one of the ways we, we communicate with each other and have for, for centuries upon centuries. And, uh, you know, I think people examine, you know, people sort of navel gaze about, Oh, what makes comics, uh, special and you know it's a it's a huge discussion that would fill tomes but i think at its base level uh it's that magic of of words and pictures and it's how we tell stories to each other uh and we react to those stories um in a different way when there are pictures as opposed to when they're not now let's talk comic cons now when you do a comic con 
What do, you know, when, when you're talking to the people that come up to your table or come to talk to you, you know, what sort of questions are they asking? What, what sort of stories are, there, are they talking about? Usually it's personal stuff. Usually it's, you know, I, you know, I, I've had this comic since I was 10 years old and it's the first one I bought or, or, you know, a story that somehow touched them or affected them. Um, that's all, that's all hugely satisfying to, to realize that you had, uh, you had some effect on somebody's life, even if it was just making a story that they enjoyed or sometimes somebody tells you this, you know, these these comics got me through high school. You know, it, it's, it's, um, you never know what you're going to get, but there's always some sort of personal attachment to it, which was, which is phenomenal and, and flattering. Um, you know, once in a while, somebody wants to know how the process works. They want to peek behind the curtain. Um, or somebody wants to know, you know, what it was like to work with a certain artist or, or, you know, that kind of stuff. But, but generally it's, it's very, it's very personalized and it's, and it's very much about the experience they had with that story. The, the, the experience that that person had with this, this thing that came out of my head and I worked with an artist to make it a real thing. And then, um, and then somebody discovered it when they were, uh, you know, when they were an adult, a kid or whatever. Um, it, it, it's kind of cool to, uh, it's kind of cool that that I can have that experience with somebody at a convention or a signing. Um, somebody had that experience with my work, just like I had that experience with other people's work when I was a kid. Um, you know, I always feel like the the stuff that you discover at ten or eleven or twelve years old <laughs> is what is what stays with you the rest of your life. Right. Um, that's that's sort of a magical age where the world is opening up to you and the things that you discover at that point are, are pretty special. I mean, for me, it's, it's Edgar Rice Burroughs, Robert E. Howard, certain comics that I read at that age, uh, certain movies I saw at that age. I saw star Wars when, when I was 11, you know, when I was, uh, maybe absolutely, I was like 11 and a half, like absolutely the right age to have my mind blown by that. Um, <laughs> which probably has a lot to do with why I do what I do. Um, so I think that the stuff that you, you get a hold of at that age is, is pretty awesome and it stays with you for the rest of your life. So the fact that, that I sometimes meet people who had that experience with my work when they were that age and it has stayed with them the rest of their lives is, uh, is really precious. To kind of extend on that, and it might be a loaded question, what is – is, has there been, like, what is that single issue or that run of a comic book, something that you didn't write that really touched you, that always just sort of pops into your head, even to this day? Uh, well, it's a couple of different ones. I mean, when uh, <clears throat> when Jim Starlin, who would, you know, obviously want to be one of my best friends, uh, did uh, the Avengers annual and the Marvel 2-in-1 annual, that... Um, that I, you know, plucked off of a spinner rack as a kid. Uh, and it was the, the final story of what, what was then the final story of Thanos and Warlock. Um, that, that, those two issues affected me in a huge way because 
because Warlock got killed and then Thanos got turned to stone at the end of it. I mean, these were these were permanent things that happened in a comic and permanent stuff just didn't happen in comics. Right. Like, like when I was a kid, you know, <clears throat> to have to have something that sort of uh, earth shaking happen in those pages and and then the story ends and there's not, you know, there's not another one next month. It's just, they're just done. And you're not going to see, um, you're not going to see Warlock and Thanos again, uh, was, was hugely affecting on me. Uh, it was, uh, it was pretty, pretty earth shaking to me. So, so that like in, maybe those were 1977, 78, something like that. I think 77. So that was a pretty big deal. And and then um, when 1986 rolled around and uh, Dark Knight Returns came out, followed, I think, shortly thereafter by Watchmen. I think Dark Knight was first, but I'm not positive. I probably read Dark Knight first, if nothing else. Like those two books coming out in 1986, which were really – I think everybody looks at that as the year that comics sort of grew up and everybody – Everybody noticed them as more than just kid stuff, even though they had they had certainly not been just kid stuff for years. But that's sort of when the when the when the culture at large kind of noticed comics because <clears throat> because of Dark Knight and, and Watchmen. So I got pulled into both of those in a big way, but especially Dark Knight um, because of because of the art, because of the format. Um, I was really kind of blown away by um, by that that first issue. And I think that's probably what to a great extent planted the seed in my head that, man, this would be really cool to do, even though it's impossible and it will never happen. But, you know, four years later I was doing it. Out of everything that you have written, is there anything that means the most to you? Um, I think the, you know, like I said, I, I totally think I have the greatest job ever. So I'm not, uh, <laughs> It's hard to pick any of this stuff, but I think the um, uh, I think the the creator own books that I've done are probably more precious to me than than the other stuff because those are the ones that didn't exist before. You know, you come in and you you pick up Silver Surfer or Green Lantern, even though we we started a different Green Lantern. Uh, you know, those are still the company's toys and you understand that going in. And it's great. It's it's a really wonderful way to to create. It's a wonderful way to make a living. But the stuff that you do um, that you create from the from scratch, from the ground floor up, um, I think is is always a little bit more precious to you. Um, it's, I think it's the difference between raising your own kids and raising somebody else's kids. <laughs> so, so the, the, the creator owned books that I've done, like, uh, Samurai Heaven and Earth at Dark Horse, uh, Dragon Prince at Top Cow, Shinku at Image, uh, and some more stuff that I have coming up. It's those, those are always books that I think are a little nearer and dearer because they didn't exist before you've created them from whole cloth and they're also exactly what you want. They're also exactly what, um, what you want them to be. 
uh, I remember when uh, the first issue of Samurai Heaven and Earth came out from from DC uh, from uh, Dark Horse, and it was I don't know it was maybe 2004 or 2005. I'm not I don't remember the year specifically, but when I got the when I got my copies when I got my comps of the first issue and looked through it. And it was, you know, the most satisfying feeling in the world because, the, like, nothing was compromised. Everything was exactly the way I wanted it. And I think exactly the way that the artist and the co-owner of it, Luke Ross, wanted it. Because it was our book. It was it was not going to be sent off to press uh, until we approved every page. There was not going to be any editorial meddling with it. There was not going to be any compromises on our part uh, for that for that book and uh, the, the stuff that, you know, the stuff that you do that's your own, I think is always a little more special. This is a question I really like to ask in all my interviews is uh, what is a bit of like a nugget of knowledge from your life or career that anybody listening to this, no matter what art avenue of artistry that they're in, whether they like comic books or not, that they could sort of project into their own life. Um, I, you know, there's God, there's a raft of them. I think if you want to write, you have to read. Um, that's certainly near the top of the list. If you want to be a writer, you have to be a reader. And if you want to write comics, that doesn't mean just read comics. Yes. Read comics, but read novels, read nonfiction, read magazine articles, read everything that, that you can get your hands on because it's all grist for the mill. It's all fuel and you take it in and much of it comes out some other way in some other form, uh, in the stories that you write. Uh, so you have to read, you have to go have a life. You have to go have experiences. You have to, um, you have to get out of your office or whatever place that you write. Um, Go out and do things. Go out and have experiences. Go out and, you know, uh, have an experience with the world at large. Travel. Uh, every every experience that you have is uh, is something that you can draw upon. Uh, it's it's something that you can um, that you can reach. You know, you can reach into your brain and pull this stuff out. Uh, and you don't, you know, you don't know how it's going to come out or when it's going to come out. Um, there's probably stuff that I experienced or saw 20 years ago that that comes out in stories now, and it's just because you know that that stuff is part of me. You know, ultimately, when you write, you are pulling stuff out of yourself, so you have to constantly be filling yourself up in some way, shape, or form. Um, read, watch, you know watch good TV, watch films, uh, go for a walk in the woods, go, go do, go do things. Don't just sit on the couch. So what are you up to these days? You know, what's the future got in store? Um, uh, let's see. Uh, tonight I have to, uh, work on the next Turok script. I'm writing, I'm writing Turok for dynamite. Um, which, as you might suspect, involves a lot of dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> Dino, Dynamite said, "What's your take on Turok?" And I said, "I think Tur I think my take on Turok is a guy fights dinosaurs." And they said, "Okay, that sounds good." Um, 
So I'm writing Turok. I'm finishing up uh, my last issue of uh, Fathom for uh, Aspen, which I really enjoyed doing, and I hope to do uh, more stuff with those guys. It was my first time working for Aspen and um, working with Sia Ohm on art and Peter Steigerwald. Uh, and uh, my editor is Vince Hernandez. I uh, had a really good experience with those guys. Uh, and I'm the editor-in-chief and lead writer for Ominous Press, which is uh, the publishing company that I'm part of with uh, Bart Sears. Sean Husfar is our publisher. Andy Smith is the art director. So we do we do single-issue comics uh, through IDW. We do graphic novels that we, uh, that we publish ourselves. Um, we just did we did beasts of the black hand which is a original graphic novel that i did with uh, matthew dow smith from a concept uh by my friend paul harding who is an amazing sculptor for dc direct and gentle giant and a bunch of places uh so we're working on the sequel to that uh, a couple other graphic novels uh I'm back with my green lantern artist daryl banks uh we're doing a world war ii graphic novel called harkins raiders that we kickstarted in december so he's daryl's getting to the end of of the pages on that um got a couple other projects uh that we're working on right now one with rick leonardi one with peter kraus uh rick and i have a different graphic novel to do uh, for a publisher that we haven't actually signed the contract yet, so I probably <laughs> should mention them. Although the contract, the the, re, the amended contract just landed in my inbox in about three hours ago, so uh, all looks good there. So I have uh, so between you know being the editor in chief and writing stuff, and it's you know I I never have a day when I when I get up and sit at the desk and go, boy, I wonder what happens today. Uh, there's always something to keep me occupied. And, and like I said, I've, I've been making stuff up for 30 years and uh, seems to be no end in sight. So I'm, I'm very blessed. Great. And I always like to end my interviews with the same question and I gave it to you ahead of time. Uh, who is somebody from your life or career that I could realistically interview for this podcast that would have some good stories or lessons to talk about? Well, I think, um, I think, the easiest, the, the obvious guys for me to turn you over to are my, my partners in, uh, in, uh, ominous press. Uh, Bart Sears is, uh, one of the best artists I know, one of my best friends, um, and has, has a, you know, a, an amazing, uh, ability to break down drawing. Uh, he's, his, in fact, his uh, second How to Draw book is on Kickstarter right now. Um, and he, like, I actually edited the first volume, which was is comprised of of a lot of Bart's old uh, Brute and Babe columns from Wizard Magazine. Uh, all updated, all, you know, uh, revised, um, plus a bunch of new lessons as well. So just editing that book, I learned a lot about, you know, the thing that I can't do, which is draw. But, <laughs> you know, it, it, even as a writer, it gives you a better sensibility of, of, um, how the artist approaches his or her job and, and what you as the writer can do to help the artist do his or her job. Uh, so, you should talk to Bart. You should talk to Graham Nolan, who was is actually publishing a book through uh, Ominous, 
uh, called Monster Island, which is actually one of my favorite things that Graham's ever done. It's very much a sort of uh, pulp, classic sci-fi giant monster movie translated into comics. Um, <clears throat> and then I guess the um, the you know the star on top of the tree is Jim Starlin. Yeah, I was just um, yeah while you were talking with um, about him, I um, I uh, I searched uh, Jim online and I see that he's uh, originally from here in Detroit. Uh, that is true. Jim is a uh, yeah. Jim is a Detroit native. So is uh, actually so is um, my buddy Terry Austin. They're both from Detroit. Uh, there was kind of a a, a, a a chunk of guys that came out of Detroit in the early seventies to, to come work at Marvel, um, Al Milgram, Jim Starlin, Terry Austin. Uh, so there's whatever was going on in, you know, whatever was in the water in Detroit in the early seventies made some, <laughs> you know, created some amazing comics dudes. Um, but yeah, Jim is, Jim is from Detroit, still has family back there. Um, his Jim's dad actually worked at one of the auto plants, um, and, and brought home, brought home drafting paper and pencils and that's how jim started to draw on uh on you know contraband uh contraband drawing paper from from an auto plant um so uh that's very detroit is very much in jim's dna great great it's been great talking with you where can people go online to get more information about what you're doing um the easiest place or the most the most uh the, the place where i am the most is twitter which is just at ron mars um, there's a, uh, ronmars.com is my website. It hasn't been updated in a while, but we'll get around to that at some point soon. <laughs> and then, uh, for the ominous press stuff, it's ominouspress.com, uh, where, you know, you can get any of the stuff, any of the products that, I'm, uh, the, the books that we've done and, uh, prints and posters and all sorts of stuff like that as well. Um, uh, so ominouspress.com, ronmars.com. There's a Facebook, there's a fan Facebook page for me that, that I will answer questions on when I, when I know that they're there, but that's not one that I monitor on any sort of regular basis. Uh, so if you really want my attention, you know, ping me on Twitter. Cool. Cool. Yeah. It's been great talking with you, man. Thanks for uh, chatting with me. No problem. Happy to do it, dude. All right. That was my interview with Ron Mars. It was great talking with him. More information and links to where you can follow Ron Mars online will be in the show notes for this episode at freshesthepodcast.com. Now remember, go live life with intensity with a capital 10. All right, goodbye and good night. Fresh is the word.